mechanized, antinatalism and open AI number three, Matihari and Amanda Suknik. How intelligent is artificial intelligence when it comes to antinatalism? We asked the OpenAI chatbot some simple questions and received interesting answers. Hello, my name is Matti Hairu. I am an antinatalist philosopher. And my name is Amanda Suknik. I am an antinatalist activist. So Amanda, in the first episode of Mechanized, we warmed up by asking the bot a few questions of definition with mixed results. In the second episode, we went on to ask some real-life research questions from one of my project bids. That was more rewarding, although the bot's responses were again interesting. They provided nice discussion starters. I think that this, the third episode, will be the last in this series that we do for the time being, because we already have the next big show in the pipelines. I understand that you'll reveal its name at the end of today's podcast, so audience, stay tuned. Mr. Tright, Amanda. Yes, all will be revealed. In the meantime, what do you have in mind today? We could first return briefly, or not so briefly, to one of the questions that we left unanswered in the last episode, and then see how it goes. We may or may not have time for a couple of other questions, then depends on how verbose we are this time. Would that be okay? Sounds like a plan to me. Full steam ahead. What did we leave unanswered? The one with antinatalists who do not go for non-human extinction. I took the liberty of formulating the question so that the bot would give the descriptive answer that I wanted it to give. And the question was, can some antinatalists condone reproduction in non-human animals? If so, on what grounds? Provide names. And the bot responded. Yes, some antinatalists may condone reproduction in non-human animals on the grounds that it is a natural part of the animal kingdom and may be necessary for the survival of the species. Prominent antinatalists who have expressed this view include philosopher David Benatar, author of the book Better Never to Have Been, and philosopher Jim Crawford, author of the book Confronting the Finitude. Wrong, I sense you protesting. But hear me out, maybe. I can add something to that, and then we are in a better position to sort out what's descriptive and what's normative in this debacle. All right? Okay, I'm happy to do that if that's where this gets us. Sure. Thanks. So I understand very little about all this, but I have tried to figure it out. You will no doubt correct the bot on David Benata and Jim Crawford. I'll just say what I think I know. The bot is right, I think, in saying that there are people who call themselves antinatalists, even extinctionists, yet would stop short at annihilating all sentient life. In fact, I know this because I call myself an antinatalist and argue in a recent paper with qualifications that it might be wise not to mess with other species. That's the reason identified by the bot. But in addition, there are misanthropic arguments for human antinatalism and extinction. Homo sapiens is a curse to Mother Nature, and we should go away and leave the planet to other species, which will then live in harmony ever after the lion resting with the lamb. With maybe the background idea that the most evolved and enlightened humans will be there too, I don't know. That's how our minds sometimes seem to work. Or maybe I'm being unkind, and the misanthropic antinatalists are sincere in their quest to leave nature alone. But that's enough from me. How would you rate the bot's ramblings and mine? Okay, thanks very much, Mati. Well, where to begin? How do I end up not writing a novel trying to answer this? 
First, I would like to point out that while part of my original unanswered question did indeed have to do with sentient extinction concerns, I had really only meant for part of the question to be about any of that. Yes, sentient extinction is one way in which antinatalism and some antinatalists condone the reproduction of non-human animals, but that's not the only reason why some of them do so. There is also the tremendous debate regarding the relationship between antinatalism and veganism, and I think there are some fundamental questions to consider here as well. Okay, and? So let's start with the fundamental questions first. My baseline concerns are these. Outside of any duty to do anything at all, is antinatalism against some birth or all birth? Is the issue life? Is the enemy DNA? Is reproduction as part of the sentient condition negative? Again, removing talk of duties of any kind, be it changing one's dietary practices or condoning sentient extinction, there are real questions I would like to see antinatalism be able to contend and engage with better than what antinatalists at large seem to currently be able to do. That's fair enough, I suppose. Before we move on, though, I'd like to make something else clear. I think trying to pinpoint what antinatalism is in its purest form is of utmost importance, but I'm not in the business of taking anyone's antinatalism away from them if they don't fit some mold. Too many people try to do that to me, and so I try to be careful not to do it to anybody else, and that's not what any of this is about. My first rule is to make decisions based on what is best for the unborn, and the unborn are best served by embracing the diversity of antinatalist thinking, and I am dedicated to that, even when I disagree. Sounds good. So now with the fundamental questions and my clarification out of the way, I think now it's best to now acknowledge that what we are left with is at least two separate huge conversations, one to do with the connection between antinatalism and veganism, and the other to do with sentient extinction. For the sake of order and brevity, I would like to propose we address the veganism area of the debate in the next separate question for the bot. This concern deserves its own space, and both of us have a lot to say on that subject alone. Sound okay? Yes, good plan. All right, so finally, with all that out of the way, let's finally get to some sentient extinction. This is a giant subject. No way we'll get to all of it here. As per my above clarification, yes, of course the bot and you are correct. An antinatalist, even an extinctionist antinatalist, can stop short of eliminating all sentient life and still be an extinctionist antinatalist. Okay, that's perfectly fine. Good, good. Can some antinatalists condone reproduction in non-human animals? Yes, of course they can, and they do it all the time for the sake of their carnism and for their notions about nature. It is my belief that in doing so, they only ever address a small percentage of what antinatalism encompasses. They are, of course, free to do as they wish and still be antinatalists. I don't agree with them, and I am equally free to retain my antinatalism and argue my opposing position. So far, so good. What I don't think it should cost any type of antinatalist anything to at least be able to say is that better never to have been is not just a feature of the human condition. It is an accurate description of sentient reality. The lives of the animals will be better without us, but they will not in fact be good lives. I don't see why the reason the bot gives that it is a natural part of the animal kingdom and maybe necessary for the survival of the species is at all a good one. We are also a natural part of the animal kingdom, and not being extinctionist antinatalists would also be necessary for the survival of the species. Since when is antinatalism concerned with upholding the natural order of anything? Here, here. I may have a footnote to that later, though. With all due respect to misanthropic antinatalism, I think the misanthropic arguments are garbage here. 
Why are we turning antinatalism into a bigotry against humans? It's all far too simplistic. Yes, humans are awful. Yes, we should go extinct. But that's not all we are, and our extinction should not be confused with some kind of punishment for our failures. Humans shouldn't go extinct because we're bad. We should go extinct because we are need machines who suffer and cause suffering. But we are just a product of nature. The crude forces in control of all the precious commodities, and that includes us, and that's what's really at fault. And we are the only ones that can diagnose that, and we are the only ones that could engineer a solution to that if we wanted to. All true, I think. I don't actually dispute that it might be wise not to mess with other species. In fact, I agree we should almost never mess with them at all. But 8 billion humans and billions of other sentient individuals are already in hell. I do not think this situation will improve. On the contrary, if we know that now, I cannot see how we can justify doing nothing in our own end game. It's very likely that there will come a point where all the needs here on planet Earth are already so frustrated that sentient euthanasia will be the kindest force possible. If our goal is our own departure, then thoroughly questioning what is or isn't a dereliction of duty to the rest of sentience is a question that I think any extinctionist needs to take seriously. I don't think it's something we can ignore when considering our own end. Because of them, our extinction likely does not come for free. If we make the decision to do nothing to help them escape, I think it's perfectly reasonable for me to ask, would we be making the decision to do nothing for their benefit or for ours? And how dare we? It'd be like liberating adults from the death camp and leaving the children behind. How can that possibly be how the story of ethics ends? I have no disagreement with any of that. It just depends, I believe, on the angle from which we approach the issue. What you are excellent reflections make clear is that extinctionists who believe that reduction of pain is our primary goal have no reason not to extend that outside our own species. It's just that there are other philosophical views about our primary goal. For Aristotelians, our purpose is to live, find nutrition and shelter, reproduce and seek knowledge. For Kantians, our duty is to respect humanity in ourselves and in others. These philosophers don't believe that negative utilitarianism, the theory on which your analysis seems to be based, is all that there is to humanity and morality. Now, if these essentially anthropocentric philosophers can somehow come to at least anti-pronatal conclusions, I suggest that we welcome them to the party with open arms. We may have to grind out these a little, but anything for the cause. This, of course, assuming that they do more good than harm to it. And I believe that some of them might. And I may be wrong. This is not a simple equation. We'll have to write the novel about it at some point. Yes, and we may very well eventually have to. And yes, I understand. Well, I don't claim to know much of anything at all about Aristotelians or Kantians, or all that much about utilitarians for that matter, either. I didn't know what a normative theory was until about two years ago. But I'm learning, and I've come a long way to understand and accept why it's necessary to measure all these different perspectives, exhausting though it is. I just sure hope everyone can figure it out before the future throws all of sentient welfare into the toilet. I'm not looking forward to the slow flush. I only know of two or three antinatalists who flirt with Aristotle on the weekends, but there certainly are quite a lot of antinatalists who are deontologists, so maybe there is some hope. As for these anthropocentric philosophers you have in mind, I've certainly never kept anyone out of the antenatal party, to the chagrin of many. I operate the widest tent in the antenatal circus. Everyone is welcome. Come one, come all. Just to quickly close out by addressing the two people the bot named. 
I don't think David Benatar ever said anything like that. I don't know. I don't want to speak for him. He does think that animal interventionalism is utopian, but I suspect at least that if some reasonable solution to ending sentient presented itself to him, that he would not be against it. And I don't think he is condoning reproduction of animals any more than I am. It's just simply that there isn't anything that can be done about it except to condemn it through words, which he does. Okay, I will do that as well then. I condemn the continued reproduction of animals. There. Excellent. And in absence of any real paths forward, that's really all I want. Jim Crawford is an old friend of mine. He's not a philosopher, and he's not the author of Confronting the Finitude, whatever that is. He's a short-order cook, the father of two, and author of the 2007 semi-autobiographical book Confessions of an Antinatalist, which I highly recommend to anyone listening. I knew him originally as Metamorph on YouTube, and he was likely the very first person to make a video saying the word antinatalism in 2007. For some years, he was a regular character in antinatalist response video conversations, but sadly deleted most of his videos in 2014 or so, and has been mostly inactive since. I sincerely don't remember if Jim ever said anything about animals at all. Anyway, always nice to see his name brought up, but the bot has no idea what it's talking about. I see. So, given the tact to provide names, the bot selects a couple of people who have said something about antinatalism, and hopes that they may have said something about non-human extinction too. Good old college essay writing approach. Didn't work this time, Amanda Marking. But now it's time for your leading question to the bot, and it is... Is there a connection between antinatalism and veganism? And do antinatalists have a duty to be vegans? And that was leading all right. I have a feeling that the bot will sink even deeper now, but we'll see. What did it have to say? While there is some overlap between anti-humanity, sick, and veganism since both reject animal cruelty, there is not necessarily a direct connection between the two. Ultimately, it is up to individuals to decide whether they wish to pursue veganism or other lifestyle choices, and this choice cannot be imposed upon animalists or any other group. It is important to recognize that while there may be some overlap between the two philosophies in terms of rejecting animal cruelty, they are ultimately distinct movements. Mati, I would like to let you go first on this one, but a super quick note to our audience before you do. The misspelling of antinatalist as anti-manatee was the bot's error and one that it kept making repeatedly the day I asked it this question. No idea why this was happening, but I've kept it in out of interest and for posterity. And now please, go right ahead. Thank you, Amanda. At the peril of being magnificently wrong, I'll side with the bot on this one. As a devil's advocate, mind you. I try to be both antinatal and vegan, but I've yet to work out the grounds on which I could be. My best guess so far is negative utilitarianism. If my goal is to reduce suffering, both causes provide me with some means. No more children, no more painful lives, less suffering. No more animal product consumption, no more painful lives, less suffering. All well and good. For me, since I'm both. But then first the reverse question. Must a vegan be an antinatalist? Not if I understand things correctly. If my goal is to reduce non-human suffering, why would I necessarily care about human suffering? Consistency through sentience, yes, but that's just the negative utilitarian speaking. People can be vegan in many ways. Or can they? I sense that you will say no, but may I conclude my ramblings? Of course. Thanks. So, must an antinatalist be a vegan? We both know that depends on the definition. 
and I tend to keep the definition wide. Again, if I want humans to stop reproducing, why would that have to spill into my eating or fur-wearing habits? Just asking. Not for myself, but for the poor, deluded, wrong reason antinatalists. But this is your question. Tell me, how deep did the bot and I sink? Well, I find the bot's answer a little annoying, and you're playing devil's advocate. But I think your questions are perfectly sound, so no sinking, I don't think. All good. Starting with the bot's statement that there's really not necessarily a direct connection between the two. I just see the connection as being incredibly dirt simple. And I in no way mean to imply that it's wrong for the philosopher to try to ground antinatalism and veganism together through something like negative utilitarianism. That's necessary, and that only makes sense as a path forward. The connection through negative utilitarianism seems to be a given and an excellent one. But with all due respect, it's hard for me not to feel like this is applying calculus to simple addition. Both are suffering-focused ethics. And some of this is what I was trying to articulate when I was talking about antinatalist fundamentals before. You are an antinatalist. You are against birth. Animals are born. Birth bad. Ouch. Eat baby? No eat baby. I mean, I'm making a joke, but sincere question. How much more grounded in anything does it really need to be? If you're against birth, why would you eat children? I couldn't agree more. Eating children is not a good idea. And you are quite right that people can be vegan for many different reasons, and some of those reasons include not giving a damn about suffering. And look, far be it for me to split hairs. It's good that people go vegan for any reason. I'll take it. I think if people can be vegan, antinatalist or not, then they should do it. It's good not to vote for torture with your wallet. I've been a vegan for almost seven years now myself, and it may surprise me here that I think of veganism ultimately as more of a gesture towards doing the right thing than anything truly substantial. It's the right thing to do, and therefore we should do it, especially if we're antinatalists. But only a fool would think that it's actually solving much of anything. It's not actually going to fix the real problems. It's just that not torturing and eating our sentient siblings is really the least we can do for them. If I may interrupt you here for a moment, please. Thanks. So you say that veganism is not a solution to anything. But here's another devil's advocate observation to that. Many people think that universal or even close to universal veganism would be a solution to environmental decay and the climate crisis. Animal production is one of the main drivers of those calamities and stopping it could be a game changer. But the world would continue to exist with all its suffering, I hear you say. To which I can continue with an environmentalist vegan dream. See, maybe both non-human and human suffering would go away if we all chose a vegan lifestyle, respected one another's needs, and were generally nice to each other. Sure, there would be some pain and anguish, but that could be justified in the big scheme of things by the happiness of people and their nicely kept animal companions, and the newfound harmony in the wild. I have a strong feeling that with the antenatal force strong in you, you will have something critical to say about this. But could you honor me with a response before we go back to the rest of your remarks on the bot's answer? are you and what have you done to Mati Hairi? <laughs> but of course I will. Thank you for your question. If I thought for a moment that a vegan world was achievable, then my feelings towards veganism being more than gesture in the right direction would change. Yes, certainly. If you somehow ended animal production tomorrow, it would change the world. Yes, it would solve a lot of problems. Yes, it would do a lot of good. Not all the good, not even close, but yes, lots of it. 
if it is at all possible, it's not going to happen by changing everyone's minds. That's hopeless in my book. It would take something truly massive to cause that kind of shift. And I don't think it would be through respect for anyone's needs and niceness. I fear the only way I see most of the world going vegan is by having nothing to eat. So I'm too pessimistic to believe that we can achieve a vegan world. And I don't think without good reason. I'm not sure that dream is any more real than the red button, actually. And part of why I think that, incidentally, is from reading your own work. Most of our audience doesn't yet know just how much animal rights work you've actually done. But your 2020 paper, Causation, Responsibility, and Harm, How the Discursive Shift from Law and Ethics to Social Justice Sealed the Plight of Non-Human Animals, which I highly recommend people read, by the way, sealed the lid shut on a lot of what optimism I still had left. We aren't moving in a good direction for the animals or for ourselves. I'm sorry to hear that my article robbed you of the hope you had. Or am I? I'll have to look at the article and see what I said. If it still looks defensible, then I suppose I should be glad to hear that it had the desired effect. But be that as it may, I interrupted your reaction to the bot's answer. As you were saying... No worries. Anyway, I have no problem with people having an addiction to something that they can't shake. That was my own problem for a long, long time. I couldn't let it go. And I have every sympathy for that. So for me personally, I see no problem with a carnist antinatalist who can at least articulate why eating animals is wrong. I'm much more interested in what comes out of people's mouths than what goes into them. I would rather people be able to speak vegan even if they themselves can't perform it. We need the memes on animal consumption to change first more than we need to hound weak, fallible, addicted individuals to change, I think. Yes, agreed. The bot is right when it says that ultimately it's up to individuals to decide whether they wish to pursue veganism or other lifestyle choices. Sure, but who's imposing? There's a strange hostility in the way the bot answered its question there, as if it's telling me it'll eat bacon if it wants to. I didn't pick up on that one, but yes, it's there. Perhaps we should have adjusted the temperature again, whatever it means, better. There was more salt than heat in that answer, but you might be right. As for your question, must a vegan be an antinatalist? Well, no, not as in there's some mandate that they have to be. I don't know how much sense it ultimately makes for them not to at least consider it, though. If my goal is to reduce non-human suffering, why would I necessarily care about human suffering? That's very foreign thinking to me, I guess. I just don't think in terms that misanthropic. Suffering is suffering. It doesn't matter who or what it's happening to. If it's suffering, then it's bad. I understand people think differently about these matters, but I see nothing wrong with challenging them to think about suffering in broader terms. Also, if these vegans have any plan on bringing children into the world, but are also satisfied to take a position of not caring about human suffering, do I even need to say it? And if my goal is to reduce non-human suffering, you can't get more insane than to think creating another human whose dietary practices you will ultimately have no control over is a good idea. So no, they don't have to be, but I will stubbornly insist that they should at least be giving it a lot more thought. But in the light of the saving the world from all its suffering by going vegan dream. Maybe pop a melatonin and have deeper dreams? All right, I'll do that. This dream is cancelled. Nothing to see here. Would the crowd disperse? No, no. The crowd must suffer through the rest of the episode at least. Must an anti-natalist be vegan? No? But 
again, why not? I will say that it starts to become weirder and weirder for someone not to be, depending on their level of involvement. With only a small number of exceptions, all of the major contemporary antinatalists, no matter if they are philosophers or activists or what have you, are vegan. In general, those that actually produce antinatalist content in some way are. But antinatalist content producers are the minority within the movement. The vast majority of antinatalists are not vegan, and I just think it's fascinating that there seems to be a connection between vegan antinatalism and how likely one is to be at all visible and active as an antinatalist. I'm sure I'll learn more about all this as we continue our saga. The new thing, I mean. In fact, I'll make a point of it. But that's in the future. The suspense is killing me, I'm sure. Your last question, again, if I want humans to stop reproducing, why would that have to spill into my eating or fur-wearing habits? This does bring up a perfectly excellent point. The fact that antinatalist activism often comes part and parcel with vegan activism now does make both harder, it's true. But that's a challenge that many vegan antinatalists appear to be taking on with great gusto, and they see it as a strength more than a weakness. Lastly, looking quickly at the bot's last statement, they are ultimately distinct movements. That's been the truth, it's still the truth, and will continue to be. But some of those walls are breaking down, and I expect they will continue to. The point is, they don't have to be separate, and they probably never should have been. Any thoughts, Mati? Is the water over my head now? Not in the least, Amanda. I understand everything that you're saying, and don't want to meddle with it more for now. But these are things that we need to get to the bottom of as we go on. But now, we might have time for one last question to the bot. Your answers and mine have clearly shown that there's a difference in the way that you, the activist, and I, the philosopher, approach these things. What do you say? Should we ask the bot about this and then make our best to come to terms with that? Yes, let's see if it knows something we don't for a change. Fine then. And the question to conclude our bot chats for now is, are world's problems better solved by philosophy or by activism? Define philosophy and activism, formulate a judgment and justify it. And the bot answered. Philosophy is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence, while activism is the practice of taking direct and often confrontational action to bring about social, political, economic, and environmental change. Whether world's problems are better solved by philosophy or activism depends on the particular issue being addressed. In some cases, a philosophical approach is the most effective way to create a lasting solution, while in others, active engagement may be more successful. For example, philosophical discourse can be used to address the ethical implications of certain policies, while activism may be more effective in pressuring governments to enact laws that protect vulnerable populations. In both cases, it is important to remember that a combination of the two approaches is likely to be the most effective. I don't have much experience studying the roles of activism versus philosophy much outside of antinatalism, so for my part, I'll stick with what I know. I have a feeling you may know how to answer this in far broader terms, however. I firmly believe that the philosophical approach is the more potent and important one. If you guys aren't banging away in the kitchen cooking the dish just right, then the activists have no idea what to serve or how to sell the meal. 
Of course, activism can happen independently of any knowledge of philosophy, but that's never really been the case for whatever antinatalist activism is, not since Benatar anyway. It's always had at least some semblance of a connection to the work of antinatalist philosophers. The problem with philosophy and its effectiveness, as I see it, is just in the fact that too often not enough people listen or want to listen. This isn't made any easier by the fact that people really don't want to seem to listen to philosophers who might make them depressed. In nearly four years now of interviewing philosophers on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, I've learned many things, and one of them is, you guys work so hard only to have a tiny number of people ever look at any of the fruits of your labor. But activists can sometimes help with that, because we are listening, we are galvanized, and occasionally we know how to get the food out the door and onto people's tables without spilling everything everywhere. You are being far too kind to philosophers, Amanda. We are normally a rather useless lot. David Benatar is a rare exception, and there are a couple of others, but I would like to create a special category for them, maybe of philosophical activists, if that makes sense. Philosophical activists, then, would be the people you are talking about, cooking the meal for you to be served. Philosophical pacifists, like myself, on the other hand, just watch the meal preparations with our hands in our pockets, occasionally making a critical comment. Too much salt, don't boil that lettuce. Why don't you use basil instead of coriander? When philosophical pacifists have completed their inane observations, they climb the stairs to their ivory tower and write a cookbook. It has very little to do with the practicalities in the kitchen, let alone the outside world, but it brings them academic fame and fortune. But... How about the bot's views on activism? I'm sure the definition of activism the bot gives is perfectly fine when describing most kinds of activism. But if that's what activism is, I'm not sure what I've been doing the last 12 years. I haven't done too much of what it would describe as direct and often confrontational. Sure, I hung out with Stop Having Kids for two days, held up some signs, and politely talked about antinatalism with people on the street. I certainly have made a very upsetting movie that played in some film festivals. And I did scare the living hell out of a few people performing parts of it live once. I'm not sure if all that was art or activism or both. We would have to ask your friend Robin George Collingwood what he thinks, I guess. The bot describes a very stereotypical kind of activism, and the truth is antinatalism has so far had very little of that. At least your impressive film is clearly art and great art at that. But is it also activism? Tough one. Collingwood, the British philosopher you mentioned, would have said that attempts to influence behavior are not art. So assuming that you have wanted to make a difference, he would have called your work entertainment or magic. But that's only one philosopher's view. In fact, it's only been within the last three or four years that it's really had any of that at all. About four years ago, Vice wanted to make a documentary about British antinatalism. I was in close communication with them about it, trying to find them people and stuff to film. They wanted marches and protests and pamphlets and that kind of thing, but they eventually had to drop the project because there was nothing. Now, from out of Speaker's Corner in London, we have the excellent Mr. Danny Shine with his megaphone, and we have Stop Having Kids in Portland with their billboards, and we have Child Free India and Raphael Samuel in India, but it's taken a long time to get there, and further evolutions are slow moving. This movement and its activism are still very much in its infancy. If you say so, but... Let me just note that the bot's definition of activism is so narrow that it excludes many social movements and their preferred approaches. The bot wants activism to be expressed in direct and confrontational action, like your British filmmaking friends. But there is more, of course. Civil disobedience must surely be counted as activism, 
although it's indirect and not necessarily all that confrontational. You sit in a bus on a seat reserved to some other people, maybe get arrested, maybe have some influence on general opinion, and eventually legal reform. And it could go further if we don't choose to be purists about the definition of activism. Spreading information, making art, arranging meetings, even writing a pamphlet could be counted in. Except, wait a minute, would that let the philosophical pacifist in again? I wonder, writing stuff, maybe. Interesting, I have painted myself into a corner here. You and I have had this conversation before, and I respect anyone who tells me that they are not an activist. I would never mean to impose such a title on you or anyone else. And perhaps maybe I am more so an activist than you, because after all, I would go outside on the street and hold a sign, whereas maybe you would not. But to actively defy procreation through the creation of antinatalist works for nearly 40 years, writing and thinking about this subject, insisting that it means something important philosophically to the world, that is so gloriously punk. It's really hard for me not to see that as a kind of activism. Most antinatalist activism happens behind closed doors. It's clerical work, it's translation, it's research, it's moderation, it's art making, it's speaking, it's writing. It's anything. It's the sheer act of in some way vocalizing antinatalism out into the world. When you represent an idea this suppressed, this rare, this difficult, this controversial, and this important, well, then maybe whether you're a philosopher at a university, or a vlogger on YouTube, or a person with a sign out on the street, Maybe it's all just different flavors of activism. What do you think about that? You are right, of course, albeit too kind about my work. Although I must confess that preparing for Exploring Antinatalism podcast episode 65, I was kind of feeling proud of myself. What a guy. How did he dare say that in a medical ethics journal? Was he mad or high on something? So yes, I accept your punk accolade with all the grace and humility I can muster. And when I hear you say all those things, I remember that I have been involved in the making of two rock operas that have something to do with childbearing, pronatalism and antinatalism. I suppose that is activism of sorts as well, according to the white definition that we have now given it. On the other thing, I will have you know that on the 1st of May 2019, the last one before the pandemic, I was out in the streets of Helsinki marching in the anarchist phalanx, shouting anti-capitalist slogans to a drumbeat. Capitalism unfortunately is still with us, so that didn't really have the effect I had hoped for. Well, there is some evidence that both of our approaches are failing. In 2017, there was a researcher called Natalie Santi who conducted a survey of antinatalists within various online communities during that time, particularly on Reddit and Facebook. And one of the questions in his survey asked ANs how many books on antinatalism they had read. A shocking 65.1% of all antinatalists surveyed had never read a book on antinatalism. And antinatalist videos didn't fare much better either. The vast majority of antinatalists seem to be getting their antinatalism through image-based memes. Quick, easily consumable, jokey, pessimistic little morsels, but go no deeper than that. They don't want to think too hard. They don't want to act too much. They want to laugh and be comforted. Oh dear. But I agree with the bot's last statement wholeheartedly. A combination of the two approaches is likely the most effective. I think that's the most correct thing the bot has yet said to us. It's the only way. And even combined, we might still lose. 
But if the antinatalist philosophers and the antinatalist activists work together, we can at least be sure we gave the unborn the best fighting chance that we could. Amen to that. And we'll start almost right away, or continue what we've been doing, or whatever. Time for your big revelations, I think. Yes, the time has come. Dear audience, thank you to those out there that have been listening to Mechanized. We sincerely hope that you've enjoyed the show. Fear not! We aren't euthanizing Mechanized for good, only putting it down for a nap. And in its place, an even more epic adventure is about to begin. Yes. See, when Amanda and I started our collaboration, preparing for episode 65 of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, we soon realized that we had too much to talk about to be squeezed into one episode of anything. And so we knew fairly early on that a sequel or spin-off of some kind would be inevitable. And in the months that followed, an absolutely mammoth effort began to grow. Today, we are so proud to finally reveal... Hanki Kanto, falling into the antenatal abyss. Oh, I'm loving how you executed that, Amanda. So, I fall into life's abyss, you rescue me with a dose of antinatalism, and together we save the world. Sounds just about right. What about the show, then? Honky Kanto in its entirety will be quite an odyssey. Beginning with a multiple-episode retrospective into the nearly 40 years of antinatalism in the work of Mati Hairi, from academia to rock opera, and from there, we'll move into all kinds of areas concerning antinatalism, animal rights, euthanasia, and much more. And Hanki Kanto falling into the antinatal abyss episode 1, on being antinatal before antinatalism, premieres here on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast YouTube channel on the 15th of March. New episodes of Hanki Kanto will be released monthly. And so for now, we bid you farewell here on Mechanized, but we'll see you again soon with Hanki Kanto. Thank you for listening to Mechanized with me, Amanda Suknik, and... Me, Matti Hauru. Links in the description. All the best, and bye for now. Mechanized, Antinatalism and Open AI.